So I want you to think back. For some of you, it's not thinking back very many years. For others, it's a trip back down memory lane to your earliest experience of the church in general, kind of how you viewed church growing up, what you thought about it, what the culture was like of it. And as you do that, I'll take you back to, to some of my early experiences. It's interesting. I mean, I, I didn't, other than my elementary years, we didn't go to a very traditional environment. So in the 70s, particularly, the culture of worship was what I call a camp song culture. It was this idea that we sang songs. Oftentimes, they were simply verses of scripture that we sang over and over again. And it was like you'd have a little acoustic guitar and everybody would sing them together. That was the culture I remember growing up. I felt like there should almost be a campfire when we worshiped. In fact, at the pinnacle of that, there was a song called Seek Ye First. Just out of curiosity, if you remember that song, raise your hand. Yep, and now I just caught all your ages. I just wanted you to know that. That's what it is. So it went like this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. What's so funny is last service, they all sang with me. You people are really too observational. And his righteousness. There's usually a sway with it. And all these things shall be added unto you. Hallelujah, hallelujah. That's what I'm talking about, huh? It's funny, there was a whole mindset that went along with it. And one of the things I did cherish in that era was it put scripture in front of you because the songs were primarily just verses we sang. And that's a great song. It is powerful. It's actually from a teaching that Jesus gave. It's formally called the Sermon on the Mount, but it's a passage often quoted by Christians about priority. The, the words are, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And when you do, everything else kind of fits and works around it. Now, I share that with you today because we're going to be looking at one of these two ideas. The kingdom might be a little more grabbable for us. Kingdom means God's rule and reign. So we want to seek his rule and reign on the earth and in our lives. But when you say righteousness, I think it brings confusion. What do we think that means? And oftentimes in the church, we associate righteousness with our personal moral conduct. In other words, do I do these things privately that are right, that I'm doing the right stuff? It's righteous, the right stuff. Do I read my Bible? Do I pray? Do I not say things I shouldn't? All of which are good things. Make no mistake, I'm not saying they're not important. But what is righteousness? And, and I raise it because we're in a series, we've called Everybody Always, we've taken this from Bob Goff who wrote a book entitled this, we're actually doing this as a study in groups which we meet during the week, many of you are in, and the idea of Everybody Always is that we love everybody in every situation, we call it radical love in our church. If Jesus loves us radically, we're to love others radically as well. And what I want you to connect today is a teaching of Jesus that actually speaks about righteousness and how it relates to how we treat other people, how we love other people. So the very song I just reminded you of or you heard for the first time is a part of this teaching that Jesus has to all of these people that are seeking to follow God about seeking first what matters most. And I'm gonna take you back earlier in the teaching to where Jesus gets into this issue of righteousness. It's in Matthew chapter six. This is where we're looking today. Matthew is one of four accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Eyewitness accounts, people that were there that tell us things that went on. And in this particular account, we're gonna look at chapter six of Matthew's 
understanding his witness and see what Jesus had to say. It's directly his teaching. And so he says this in the middle of all this teaching. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now we could stop there, but Jesus is gonna give us a lot more explanation. But I wanna stop just for a minute and ask you the question, what do you think righteousness is? Consider, what is Jesus saying? Why is he saying practice your righteousness? What does that look like and what does it mean? Now I wanna take you into the Jewish culture to better understand this. And I'm gonna teach you a word. It's a Hebrew word, it's tzedakah. I want you to say after me, tzedakah. 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 Not Sudoku. Just want to make sure you got it right. I don't even know why I say it different ways. I just enjoy it. It's kind of fun to watch if you actually follow me. Tzedakah means righteousness. It's the understanding from the Hebrew scripture, from all of the people that Jesus walked with and lived in his own people, they had an understanding particularly of what this meant. There's lots of examples of it. In fact, in Psalm 106, as God speaks, as the wonderful psalmist writes, he says, blessed are those who act justly, who always do what is right. In other words, there's this sense of doing something that brings about justice. Now in our current culture, when we hear justice and even righteousness, we tend to think about what we're stopping people from doing that they shouldn't do. But it's exactly the opposite in its meaning to the Jewish culture. In fact, if you look at this significantly and what it means, it actually is this different understanding of helping those that are most dominated and most struggled. Righteousness is bringing about the right things for the people that are most hurting and struggling and downtrodden. Here's just an example of it in Deuteronomy 15. It says, there will always be the poor people in the land, which by the way is something Jesus speaks about later in another circumstance. Therefore, I command you, be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in the land. You see, Sedekah to the Jewish mind was taking those who are beaten down and offering help to them generously. In fact, it's often referred to in this passage as giving. When we look at God himself, he's described as Sedekah Adonai, God's righteousness. But the way that's defined, the way you hear it translated in the scriptures are words like kindness, abundant generosity, gracious acts. If we were to look at it, it's God's covenantal faithfulness. Him saying, whoever is struggling and hurting and downtrodden, you wanna know who I am? I am the God who brings righteousness. I'm the God who makes it right. And it very simply gives us a picture of rescuing us from distress, showing mercies to us, ultimately of helping those who are forgotten and forsaken. Now tell me that doesn't hit us differently if we hear these words, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Oh, Jesus isn't saying you have to behave privately in a morally pure way, though that's a piece of what he wants us to do. He's saying when you want to live righteously, you look where there's injustice and oppression and struggling and you meet it with activities. Now it's interesting, if you were to even talk to somebody who is orthodox to reform in the Jewish culture today, they will talk to you regularly about their obligation to do right things, to help and be generous to those in trouble. But just like in that day, they missed the point of why and what it means and what it does. And I wanna kind of give us a picture of this today because Jesus goes on then after he speaks of this to talk about how we can go about it the wrong way. 
He says, when you give to the needy, now he's describing what righteousness is. Righteousness is helping those who are living in injustice and in oppression. Do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. Do not announce it in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Don't do it so others see you. I tell you, they've received their reward in full. Now, I think we can kind of in an obvious way go, oh, I get this. What he's saying is, what's your motive? Who are you trying to make see you in a good light? Now, I have to tell you this in all honesty. This is a lifelong struggle in my life. You know, if you're, in case you don't realize it, when you like to be in front of people, you probably have some unhealthy things because you like the attention and the affirmation. Just giving full, honest disclosure. So in my first job, I first began to discover how this would be a lifelong struggle. I'm a clinical social worker in my first role. I'm helping teenagers who've been through severe abuse and their families are broken apart in all this. And this was my thought. I'm gonna go in here and help them and they are gonna be so grateful for what I do. I am gonna be a hero every day of, the li- of my life. Now, I know you're probably smarter than I am, but think about this. When's the last time a teenager turned to you and said, thank you so much for the way you've helped me? And a family, when would they turn to you and go, thanks for bringing up the darkness and the crud in our lives so we can get better. I'm so appreciative. And then what I found that was even more disturbing was they sometimes got better without my help. That really pissed me off. I don't know how to say it any other way. I'm sorry. Like, didn't you understand I'm here for you in order to meet my needs? You get in the picture? Now, make no mistake, I don't think all of you try to please people like my own pathology and sin pattern, but make no mistake, all of us focus on what people think in one way or another. Maybe it's that you enjoy believing that you've accomplished more than others, and so you look in relation to others, and if you feel more elevated, you feel better. Maybe it's through their, your reputation and what you do. It's not always pleasing, but the image is the same, which is we care what other people perceive and think. Jesus here is going right at motives. Hey, I want you to understand why you do what you do, and I want you to understand it can cause significant issues. He goes on to explain it further. When you give, let me help you out know how to do this to the needy. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Now I love this because I think it has this beautiful rich wisdom right in these few words. First is he simply says, do it where? In secret. Now in case you don't know, there are two more teachings that follow. He teaches first about giving then he teaches about prayer, and then he teaches about fasting. All three of them, he says a similar statement. When you give, don't be like the hypocrites sounding a trumpet to let everybody know, which did actually happen, by the way, in the synagogues. People would actually sound a trumpet and go, look what I did. And we all go, that's kind of obviously pathetic, but we have much more subtle ways to do it, don't we? Then he gets to prayer and he says, don't be like the hypocrites who stand out in front of everybody with their glowing words and they ramble on and on and on. And you can decide between, am I impressed with their words or just tired of listening? And then by the way, for those of you who fast, which fasting is a wonderful discipline many of us have lost, he says what they did in the ancient world was they put sackcloth on and ashes so everybody knew, oh, woe is me, I'm fasting, I want you all to know. All three of them, Jesus says, check your motives. 
You want to know why it's done in secret? Because you find out why you're doing it. And you fight against the battle we all have, which is we care what other people think. That's the mess we get into. Let me show you this one other piece from it where he says your father will reward you. And, and I've wrestled with this, and I, I mean, you can argue with me about it. Not now because I have a mic, but you can argue with me about it later if you want to. But I, I think the way we often read this is as if God's standing back transactionally and deciding what he'll give you. Oh, if you look for other people and I'm gonna catch you, you're done. Enjoy what you did. But if you do it the right way and you seek me, I'll give you something. That's how we see it. I, I don't believe that's what this is saying at all. I think what Jesus is saying is, you get what you work for. In other words, it's very, a very simple idea that when we do this, you get the reward you work for. What he means is, if you're trying to get people's affirmation and attention and that's why you do it, that is what you'll get. You get what you work for. Now, let's just consider this honestly. Can you count on other people's affirmation in your life to carry you? In case you don't know, the answer is no. And we should know in this day and age, all the more than ever, have you realized that we are fickle with each other? One day you're a hero, the next day you're a zero. It's unattainable, and you're only as good as your last performance. That's how it works when we seek the, the affirmation of people. It doesn't mean we don't care. It means we understand it's a substitute. What Jesus is really saying is you can get that reward, but it is a substitute. It won't last, it won't fill, and it will lead you empty. You want the true reward? You seek what truly rewards. In other words, what Jesus is encouraging us is, I'm not trying to tell you to change what you do just so you get what you want. I'm telling you, seek what matters most. And guess what? It's not each other and what you think of each other. Jesus talks about this a lot in his teachings. This is just one example from John chapter five, another account. He says this to these early disciples, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from only God. I mean, it's another way of saying what he said in this passage, which is really a simple idea. Guess what? When you look out for each other, you pick the wrong goal. When all you're asking for is the affirmation of others and you don't even consider the presence, the pleasure, and the affirmation of God, I question your motives and your belief. Now, I share this with you because, it, like I said, I'm not finding that it's a one-shot deal. Oh, I got through that, and now I don't seek that anymore. Have you ever realized that so much of the Christian life is an ongoing process? It's not like you get it and it's suddenly gone. You get it and you keep asking God to help you with it, and you keep moving, and you keep maturing, and you keep growing. So this last year, I got really enamored with this statement because it's in Scripture a bunch, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. And in our culture today, we hear the fear of the Lord and many of us think it's this toxic negativity like God's this mean God that's gonna take us down. We better fear him. Do you realize the contradiction for that or the other alternative is called the fear of man? And it doesn't mean man versus woman. It means humanity in case you wonder. And, and think about it this way. When you have the fear of humanity, who are you trying to please? Humanity. What it's really saying is when you have the fear of man, the fear of people, you build your life around what other people think. When you learn to have the fear of the Lord, you actually build your life around the God of the universe. 
how can you believe since you accept glory from one another, since you live in the fear of humanity, but you don't seek the glory that comes from God? I think in Jesus' teaching here, he's offering some beautiful picture to us, not saying it as a what you do and how you do it, but saying what's your heart at? What are your motives? And make no mistake, I'm not offering you here's three steps to fix it. I'm offering confession. Because all I know to do is go, God, I, I wish people liked me and liked what I did. Help me not to seek the glory that comes from people, but to actually discover your heart. Help me to stop substituting because all of us know as good as that moment is, it's gone like that and people's opinions change like that. And people are people. It will never fill the hole God made for us, which is to find our pleasure in who he is and what matters to him. I mean, I think what Jesus is talking about here is beautiful for us. I actually think we should realize that we work for what we get rewarded for. We work for what we want. And he's saying there's something different. Here's a simple way to say it. We live for an audience of one. You and I live for an audience of one. And guess what? He's a captive audience. He longs to give us himself. And he's not giving it out of some narcissistic need, like, oh, please like me, don't like people. He's the best there is. When we go for people instead of him, we've just aimed too low. He's saying, you want what's best? Come here. I'm it. I'm better than all this. When you settle for doing things for people so that other people see you've laid the bar so low, it will never fill you. When you get this and get my heart, it will change everything. And make no mistake, it doesn't just end here. It's not like we do these things and suddenly we please the heart of God. I think there's something inside of this very strategy and tactic and the fact that Jesus actually calls it righteousness and all through history it's been called righteousness as we help those forgotten and forsaken because when we do it, we find God. Let, let me just show you a, a simple picture of this in the Psalms uh, and there's lots of them, but this is one of the Psalms and this is the, is the ESV version because I think it translates it better. He says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Now what he's saying is when I'm living in the place of righteousness, I see you. Well, there's, a, there's a beautiful gem in this that what he's ultimately saying, the psalmist is, is God, when I act on behalf of those who are forgotten and forsaken, when I deal with the poor in spirit and the poor in life, somehow I actually see you. Because you realize that when we do the things God does, we get near his heart, right? So let me take this to another teaching of Jesus. This is at the end of Matthew's account. He's talking about the end of life, or the end of history. He calls them sheep and goats, and he says they're different groups, the people who really knew me and the people who didn't. And he uses a very simple example to differentiate. He says things like, when you help those who are hungry, when you help those who are thirsty, when you help those who are naked, when you help those who are strangers and alone, and when you help those in prison, you actually do what I want. You actually live in righteousness. And there's questions about it because he tells people they did it and people they didn't. And he tells them, you did it to me. And they're like, what are you talking about? 
So he says this. They ask, when did we see you sick and in prison and go to you? Because that's what he says is when you did this to them, you did it to me. And he says it again. The king, I truly tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. He's saying, when you help those oppressed and beaten down, when you're with the poor in spirit, the poor in life, those who are struggling, you don't just see them, you see me. That's profound, you realize. We often say, why don't I see more of Jesus? Guess where he is? He's with those that are beaten down and struggling. Mother Teresa after she passed, they, some around her found these series of her private journals and they published them in a book. Uh, and she didn't have any intention for this, but if you haven't read it, it's fascinating to hear her struggle and journey because she has lots of things. But she has one particular section when she speaks of her mission in Calcutta and she says this, and she speaks of the whole church this way. She said, I see Jesus on the cross saying two words, I thirst, which is something he says on the cross in the midst of the dryness and the pain. And she goes, that's the call of the church to quench thirst of those around us. See, I think when we help those who are forgotten and forsaken, we get near to the heart of God. And when we get near to the heart of God, we begin to see Jesus in ways we haven't before. You wanna know why he says when you do this for others to reward you? You get your reward is because we don't even get the point. When you do this in private and in secret, when your motivation is to do it out of the heart of God, you actually find him in the very activity you do. Think of it this way. Opening our heart to those in need, you'll open your eyes to Jesus. And make no mistake, we have a lot of caveats, don't we, in how we don't help people? I mean, think of all the reasons we tell each other. I do it. Oh, they'll make bad use of it. Oh, this won't happen. Oh, it's not really a good use. It's not really going to help them long-term. And I'm certainly not trying to tell you how to manage what you have, but I'm telling you to check your heart. One of the things we don't connect is we think Jesus really loves us and forgives us for our spiritual poverty. Like, we can't fix our spiritual poverty, can we? But we tend to look at people in poverty situations or in some kind of oppression as if they cause it. And we differentiate that from the idea of what Jesus does for those of us in spiritual poverty. It's interesting, I, you know, every time I'm with somebody that goes through a tough situation, the more I ask questions, the more I figure I could be there and even in worse shape if it were me. The less I feel like I would rise above it and the more I understand the pain of it. God wants to open our hearts and open our eyes. We're in a study right now with Bob Goff. He does a video training for those of you who are in groups. And in this particular week, it's called Don't Play It Safe. He talks a little bit about an eye condition that caused him to have trouble and what happened as he pursued helping it. Take a look and hear his words. One of the uh, things that's happened to me in the past year, we have been traveling to one of the schools that you guys helped build in Iraq. And I woke up in the morning and I... I couldn't see out of my right eye. I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> and like a knucklehead, I went to five more countries before I got back to San Diego to see the eye doctor. The eye doctor said, buddy, you are the stupidest smart guy I've ever met before. I'm like, wait till you hang out with me longer. Like, 
And so we've been doing all these operations on it to see if we could make it work again. And before every operation, I asked the doctor, how much am I going to be able to see and when? And you know what? She won't tell me. She always says the same thing. She says, Bob, you're going to see more. And because this is somebody I trust, I'm okay with that. And you know what the promise of Scripture is to you and me? That we're going to see more. We're going to see more of Jesus in our lives the more we see Jesus in the lives of the people who have failed. Instead of moving away from them, our idea is to move towards them, not just to be nice, but to be Jesus. That's what he did constantly move towards people who'd messed up. Not to just say something really nice to them and pat them on the head, but to just say, I can join you in those failures. In fact, sometimes I wonder if God leads us towards failures so we know and need him more. Sometimes I wonder if God leads us in failures so we know and need him more. It's a crazy thing to consider. It'd be an interesting thing for any one of you to just take the four Gospels, which are the four accounts of Jesus. Watch how he is with people that seem the most broken and how he is with the people that seem to have it the most together. Guess who he's really helpful to and kind to? The most broken. Guess who he's hardest on are the people that think they're better than others and have it most together. Hey, don't practice your righteousness in front of others to see. Don't get the idea that people will make you feel better. Don't get the idea that you're better. You go in private. You do this where nobody sees and you will discover my very heart. And by the way, you're gonna discover how Jesus sees us in our own struggles and brokenness. And I guess that's what I keep seeing in my own life. Make no mistake, I'm not saying if we help people in need, that fixes everything. They need forgiveness and life and salvation. But when we ignore that need, we miss an aspect of who Jesus is. We miss discovering his heart, and we miss, as we open ourselves to others, seeing him in new ways. We open our heart to those in need. We actually open our eyes to who Jesus is in ways we miss. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for the way you not simply were teaching us, but the way you lived and pointed us in it. God, I confess on, our, on behalf of all of us that each of us have places we want others to think highly of us and see us in a good light. I confess to you the ways that we tend to see certain people and say beyond help. And Lord, we simply want to be motivated by those around us you have for us to meet needs in little ways and great ways. Lord, I pray you would open our hearts where we become closed to helping those most in need. And Lord, along the way, you'd open our eyes to see you in new ways. Check our hearts and move us. Be the doctor that opens our eyes more and more and more as we step out more and more and more to help others. Lead us to that end in your name. Amen.